an ad by Calvin Klein portrays a smiling father with ostensibly his daughter on his back. And at the bottom of the ad, there is a picture of a cologne. And the cologne is entitled Eternity. Eternity. I thought about that for a while. Why would they entitle a cologne Eternity? But I suppose, though I cannot say for sure, that the connection is just as the bond between a father and his daughter is eternal, so the fragrance of eternity is eternal. I'm not sure I want to wear a perfume on and on and on for the rest of my life. Eternity. The title itself engenders thoughts that go beyond a bond between a father and his daughter, however precious. It engenders thoughts that transcend that of an ad for a cologne. And indeed, eternity describes something far greater. It describes our destiny. Our destiny is woven into the concept of eternity. And the passage that we read from Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, deals with this subject of eternity. <coughs> the chapter that is chapter 16, is preceded by three parables in chapter 15. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And all of these three parables in chapter 15 make one essential point. That is, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, just like a shepherd rejoices over a lost sheep that is found, and a wife rejoices over a lost coin that she had received as part of her dowry. She will rejoice over that receiving or finding that coin, and a father will rejoice over a son who returns, so God rejoices over those who are repentant. In chapter 16, we have two main parables. Again, both of these parables are linked. The first is of the unjust steward that runs from verses 1 through to 13. And here, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he encourages them through this parable to exercise prudence, generosity, and faithfulness in relationship to the use of material possession, money, wealth. In verses 14 and 18 of chapter 16, Jesus shifts the emphasis from the disciples to the Pharisees. These were a religious group that believed that they ought to keep the Old Testament law in the strictest of terms. And Jesus speaks to them 
because he perceives that they resented him in their heart. They scoffed at him because of his teaching on money, because they were essentially lovers of money. And he tells them that God views the outward display of piety, an outward display that men look up to and revere as, in sight of God, an abomination. Because, you see, God wants religion not merely an outward show, but religion of the heart. He goes on to talk to them, to talk to people who revered the law, who were, en were enthusiasts of the law, but in reality did not keep the law, that since the arrival of John the Baptist, a new era has been introduced where men and women are entering into the kingdom of God. But he points out that the law of God, in terms of the moral demands of the law, continues with authority. And that is why our Lord Jesus speaks about the law's continual validity in terms of adultery and divorce. And so our Lord Jesus says to them that God's law will continue. Moral demand continues and is a binding upon us. It is after this exchange, this address to the Pharisee regarding the continuation of God's law, that he then returns to the theme of wealth, material possession. And we want to look this morning together at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The first thing that I think that we should note in this parable is the portrayal of contrasting circumstances in this life. The portrayal of contrasting circumstances in this life. That is in verses 19 to 21. The story begins in the same way verse 1 begins in chapter 16. There was a certain rich man. That is in verse 1. In verse 19, there was a certain rich man. And so we ought to see this as a parable, a story about earthly things that bear a spiritual significance. And Jesus begins this parable with two different characters. The first is described as a rich man. Some people call him Dives, but Dives is not his name. Dives is a Latin term which means rich. It just means he's a rich man. There are two characters. One is rich. He possesses an abundance of wealth. And he exhibits this wealth in two main ways. First of all, by his expensive dressing or his expensive clothing and by his excessive lifestyle. The scriptures tell us in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple. And you need to understand that wearing purple in the first century was the dress of kings. That's how kings dressed. They dressed in purple robes. That is why Jesus was mocked in this way. This man was dressed like a king. You know, you, you go to a local store, you even center to buy a, a suit, and the guy tells you, you know what, this is going to cost you $200. If you are like me, you would look in horror. I think, really? Well, a suit for $200? Really? Why? Why? You know, this guy did not buy his suit at Tip Top Tailors. 
He, he didn't even go to Burlington Coat Factory in New York to buy that. No, this is a fellow who only wears Italian design suits. And some of these suits, especially those that are luxury designers or cater to the luxury market, their suits start at $22,000 and go up to $890,000, something like that, something ridiculous like that. Well, this fellow, I don't know where on that spectrum his robe would have, would have fitted, but this is an expensive, expensive wardrobe that this man has. He dresses in the best. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he was dressed in purple and fine linen, and fine linen may refer to his undergarment. In other words, he was dressed in, in, in the most expensive outer and underclothing. Not only does it tell us about his dress, it tells us about his lifestyle. It says, and he fared sumptuously every day. Not only was he dressed in the best, but he believed that he should live life to its fullest. In a culture where most people for food would eat, would have soup and bread in a day, and they would only go to a feast, for example, like a wedding or some religious festivity, this man was always feasting. That was what it means when it says in verse 19, he fared sumptuously. For him, every day was a party. Every day was the best of meat and the best of wine. He was continually gratifying his fleshly desires. This is the rich man. The best of clothing, the best of foods. The second character is described in verses 20 to 21. And here he's, he's identified as Lazarus. It is of note that Jesus uses the term or the name Lazarus. This is the first time in any of our Lord's parables in the gospel that he actually names a character. But he singles out this man and he names him Lazarus. Now this term Lazarus, this name Lazarus, is the translation of the Old Testament name Eliezer. Eliezer. And what it means, Lazarus simply means God helps. Now we are told about this man, I'm going to come back to this name later, but we are told a few details about him. First of all, we are told that he was a beggar. He was a beggar. His name is Lazarus. He was a beggar. And secondly, we are told that he was laid at the gate of the rich man. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sore, who was laid at his gate. The language, the verb that is translated laid, might be far more violent, for it can also mean to cast. So that it may suggest that this beggar, Lazarus, God helps, was dumped, was cast at the gate of this rich man. The tense of the verb, laid, to cast, indicates that he remained there. He was placed there and he stayed there. Unlike the rich man who was dressed in purple, Lazarus was dressed in sores. He was covered. His body was infested 
with boils, gaping, oozing sores. And unlike the rich man, he did not have much. In fact, Lazarus had very simple taste. He did not spend his days dreaming about sampling the best wines and the best of meat. He wasn't thinking of a, a lovely piece of steak or lamb. No, he had far more modest desires. Because we are told that this beggar desired to be fed, in verse 21, with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. All Lazarus wanted was leftovers. He didn't want much, just leftovers. It is said that in, in, in often times in the ancient Near East, and particularly in Israel, when people went to feast and they ate, you know, they didn't always wash their hands in bowls of water. When they finished eating, they would take a piece of bread, wipe their hands, throw it on the ground, and the dogs would come and eat the bread. That's what Lazarus wanted. He wanted the piece of bread that was used to wipe the hands of the guests that was thrown away. But not even that he received. You see, this rich man gave him no attention. He rejected the law of Moses, which laid out very specific rules as to how the poor were to be treated. And the Old Testament, particularly in the Mosaic law and in the Pentateuch, talks about caring for, providing for the needs of the poor. That's why you had the law regarding gleaning not going through your harvest and, 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 and picking all the, the, the corn, leaving some behind so the poor could come behind and find something to eat. See, the, the Bible has always been concerned about the poor, the material poor. Yes, the poor in spirit, but also the material poor. But this rich man did not care that there was a man at his gate dying of hunger. He did not listen to the Mosaic command to provide for the poor. He did not listen to the prophetic injunctions against neglect of the poor. He simply kept on feasting, kept on enjoying himself. In fact, the only attention Lazarus received was from dogs. Wild dogs. For they were the ones who came to lick his sores and since dogs were seen as unclean he was made ritually impure and unclean because dogs were licking him what we see is a portrayal of contrasting circumstances the parable however shows a reversal of states we see a portrayal of contrasting circumstances in this life, but then we see a reversal of states in the life after death. That is in verses 22 to 26. The story takes a dramatic turn in verses 22 and following. In the fullness of time, the beggar Lazarus dies. And we have an 
an, ex- an elaborate description of what happens after he dies. It says, so it, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. This reference to Abraham's bosom is a reference to the place of comfort and joy. It is a place to the banquet hall of heaven. Lazarus dies and angels escort him to heaven. But in a terse and proleptic manner, uh, the narrative describes the death of the rich man. It tells us in very few words, the rich man also died and was buried. It means that there is more to come. This is a pregnant expression. The rich man also died and was buried. Here we begin to see now, after death, a reversal in circumstances. First of all, we note now that Lazarus is in the place of comfort and joy and blessing and wealth and riches. He's in Abraham's bosom. The rich man is in a different place, a place that is described as Hades. In verse 23, we are told regarding the rich man, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. This man is described as being in Hades, and Hades is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Sheol, of the Hebrew Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament refers to the the place of the dead, that nether world, that, that intangible world of the dead. And that is what Hades meant, the place of the dead. But by the time of the New Testament, there is some evidence, at least from the intertestamental literature, that the, that the term Hades began to take on different colors and hues. And by the time of the New Testament, Hades begins to adopt similar nuances to the word Gehenna, the normal word for hell, the place of burning, the place of torment. We are now told that he finds himself in Hades, which must be seen here as synonymous with hell. And you know that because Hades is used in the New Testament in other places, as a contrast, as the opposite of heaven. You see that, for instance, in Matthew eleven twenty-three, in our Lord in his woes, he says, and you, Capernaum, you who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Hades then is seen as a contrast to heaven. We see then that the different circumstances, we see then this reversal of state. Lazarus is in heaven, this man is in Hades or hell. But we see a a reversal not only in their places, but also in the state in which they exist. The rich man is existing in, first of all, intense misery. And I want you to look at the language of the passage. 
It says in verse 23 that I having been buried and having, having been buried being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. This man is in a state of intense misery. The term that is used here for torment is basanos. It is a term that is used to mean the imposition of extreme pain in order to elicit a confession. He is being tormented. This, this torment, he refers to it again in, at least is referred to in verse 28. For I have five brothers that they, may, that they may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He is being tormented. This is a place of extreme misery. He uses another term, udameo, which refers to anguish. And he talks about his suffering. We are told in, in verse 24, he cried, having looked into heaven, having seen Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, that he cried and said, Father Abraham, I ha have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented. I am in anguish in this flame. What is his state? Unlike that of Lazarus, he is in intense, extreme misery. But it ought to be borne in mind that this is conscious misery. This man sees into heaven. He sees Abraham and he sees and recognizes Lazarus, because he calls him by name. You will find later that he's able to hear because Abraham speaks to him. This is a man who feels. He tells Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue because I am tormented in this flame. It is then physical at a most basal level. He is conscious and he is physical. He is suffering. I understand the argument you know, about how hell can be dark and yet there will be flames and so on. And the question whether the language is figurative. But even if the language is figurative, let us be clear that the suffering is not figurative. I do not know what figurative suffering looks like. This is real suffering. He says, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. I suggest to you that as he looks into heaven and he sees Lazarus, that this is not merely physical, but also mental anguish. Mental anguish. We live in a context where many will tell us that there is no such thing as hell and there is no punishment after this life. But this runs counter to this passage. It runs counter to the rest of the scriptures. Let me point out to you in Matthew 25, 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Or 
In Matthew 13, 41 to 43, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is also used by John in the last book of the Bible, this notion of torment and suffering. It He talks about those who do not believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He says of him, he, that is the one who does not believe and follow the Lord, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascend forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name, Revelation 14, 10 and 11, is a state of misery. Whatever man may say about the future and whatever men may say about what comes next, the Bible describes a condition in which man is engulfed in flame, is in torture. But not only is his state one of extreme misery, his state is one that exists for eternity. He calls upon Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip his finger, the tip of his finger in water to put on my tongue. Now Abraham tells him, he says, remember in verse 25, that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he's comforted and you are tormented. By the way, Abraham is not saying that it's just God is only reversing it because in this life you had good things, you were blessed with a lot of money, and now you must therefore suffer in hell. It's not because he was rich why he's suffering. It's not because Lazarus was a beggar why he's given heaven. But fundamentally, this man was one who trusted in his wealth who lived in self-sufficiency and was callously indifferent to the needs of the poor around him vis-a-vis Lazarus. Lazarus was one also who went to heaven because he trusted in God. But notice that the position in which this rich man finds himself is not only for a day, but for eternity. And you you get a flavor of this, you get a sense of this because of what Abraham continues to say to him. In verse 26, he says, and beside all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. I believe that there are only few more haunting statements in scripture that can be equated to this word. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. He wants remedy. He wants relief for his suffering in Hades. And Abraham tells him that there is a chasma 
the word from which we get chasm. There is an unbridgeable space between heaven and hell. We cannot come to you and you cannot come to us. It is a reminder that our state after death is fixed. There is no repentance. There is no second chance. There is no change. There is a great gulf fixed. It underscores the permanency, the eternity of hell. There is no change, no help. Again, Dante's words abandon all hope. He who enters here is a fitting summary of this man's condition. I want you to note with me then the portrayal of contrasting circumstances in life and the reversal of states in the life after death. And thirdly, I want you to note the fundamental su sufficiency, the fundamental sufficiency of the word of God for salvation. So, this man has been denied his appeal for help. And so he turns, he makes another request to Abraham. He remembers that he has five brothers who are unconverted. And so he tells Abraham, send Lazarus to my brother. Send him to my brothers so that they might hear and repent. Still thinks of Lazarus as a servant. He can just command him to do whatever he wishes. You see, in hell, not even the character of the rich will change. Hell is not about changing people. It's about punishment. He's only concerned about his brothers, not about his countrymen, not about his neighbors. He has made a final, uh, he has made an irretrievable mistake. But there is still hope for his brothers. So he says to Abraham, send Lazarus, that he may warn them, lest they come to this place. He's not concerned that his brothers should become children of Abraham by faith. He's simply concerned that they should escape hell. And there are many today who, who, who do not concern themselves with loving God. They're simply concerned about not getting into hell. But this request is rejected again. And Abraham tells him, Abraham tells him, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. Let them hear them. Let them hear the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures are sufficient for them to come to repentance. The Old Testament scriptures will point them to the way of salvation. But this, this rich man is not convinced. He wants to enter into a little debate with Abraham. He says, not so, father. Not so, he tells Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, my brothers are deeply embedded into a materialistic culture. It will take something massive to shake them out. You must send someone from the dead, and then they will hear, and then they will repent. And Abraham tells him, he says, 
if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they even hear. They will not be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. Abraham makes it clear that it is not that men disbelieve because of insufficient evidence. Men disbelieve because they reject the evidence before them. And so the argument of Abraham runs along this line. If men will not accept the evidence that God has given, the revelation that God has given already, they will not accept further revelation. Because fundamentally the problem lies not in the nature or the quality of the revelation, but in the nature and the quality of the heart. No amount of revelation will change the heart. A heart that is resistant and opposed to God. You see that in Jesus' own miracles, how he performed miracles after miracles, and yet the people kept on saying, show us more. They generally did not believe him. And what our Lord is saying is that the word of God is fundamentally sufficient for salvation. My dear friends, I must make a few remarks in conclusion. You and I must know that eternity is a reality. Eternity is a reality. Simon Blackburn, professor of philosophy at Oxford, confidently declares, he says this, he says, mankind long obsession with existence in the hereafter is the result of a philosophical error. So our obsession with the life to come arises from a philosophical error. He made these concluding remarks in the book that he wrote. He said that he secretly hopes that his friends and family will be a little sad when it, when it happens to him. That it happens means death when he dies. But he wished that he will, it will happen to him at the end of a long life. And then he sums up the book in these words. But for myself, it will be nothing about which I will be bothered. That is, death will be nothing about which I will be bothered. Well, why does he not have any concern about dying? It is because he does not believe in the life to come. He has already convinced himself. He has already found refuge in the idea that there is no existence after death and that the belief in an existence after death is the product of faulty wiring in our genes. In other words, this notion that we have of life to come after death, it is precisely because we are not thinking straight. But my dear friends, this, this answer to the problem of the, the life to come cannot be so summarily brushed aside. In every culture and in every age, mankind has held to the belief that there is a life after death. 
And the reason that we believe that there is life after death, that answer is given to us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. He has put eternity in their hearts. The reason we know that there is life after death, it is because God has given us an awareness that this life is not the end, but that there is more to come. He has put eternity in their heart. So that even while they are denying the reality of a life to come, their own consciences are witnessing that there is yet another life that is to come. He has put eternity in their hearts. My dear friends, we know that there is eternity to come because Jesus confirms it. He says it here in his words. And he proved that there is a life to come because he died, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And this same Christ is coming again. Oh yes, one thing you can be sure of. You, I see people today who say, well, yeah, we, we, we should have a chance to, to determine how we die. I think that it is God alone who determines our death. To take the life of another or our own life is murder, except in the case of punishment for crimes against man that leads to death. Willful, deliberate murder. Men are concerned about dying. People are concerned about taking their own life when they exit. And I think that that is a, that is a serious decision to make. Because it is fundamentally against the word of God in Genesis chapter 9. But why have a decent death? Why have a pain-free death without considering what comes after? Because death leads to eternity. It's the doorway into eternity. You and I must know that eternity is a reality. God has placed eternity in our hearts. We need to understand that the place of hell is a place of unbearable torment. No palliative care. No morphine or painkillers. This is, this is it. It's a place of regret. It's a place if, of, if only I had listened, if only I had trusted, if only I had turned. It's a place of loss. It's a loss of divine favor. It's a loss of all goodness. It's a loss of Christ. It's a, it's a lust even of one's own self. You see, this man, this rich man is given no name. He is an anonymous person. And hell is a place for anonymous people. It is a place of unending torment. There is a gulf fixed. No parole after 20 years. Or a billion years for good behavior. No exit. There is a great gulf fixed. My dear friends, I want to ask you. I know my time is almost through, but let me ask you. Where are you going to spend eternity? Where will you be when you die? If you were to die right now. Massive heart attack. Just killed over and died. 
where would you be? You need to know, secondly, that the choices that we make in life are absolute and they bear eternal dividends. Every choice you make in this life is absolute. It will lead you to heaven or hell. It bears eternal dividend. This man made a choice. With all the wealth God gave him, he thought he should lavish it on himself. Give himself the best and the brightest and ignore the needs of others around. Lived in self-sufficiency. Lived without God. Well, there's a day of reckoning. The choices we make are absolute and they pay dividend. You must make the right choices. Choices that lead to heaven. There is a great gulf fixed. You must so live. You must so live that you find yourself, that you awake after death in heaven. You can never get out of hell. You hear me clearly? You can never get out of hell, so don't get in. And the question then is how do we ensure that we do not get in? My friends, I want to leave you with these good words. There is in this dismal, dismal, dismal subject a glimmer of hope and brightness. It tells us, you see, that hell is avoidable and heaven is available. There is a glimmer of hope. And you say, where is the glimmer of hope? It's in the name Lazarus. God helps. How is it that a man and a woman is preserved from going to hell? It is because God is our helper. It is only by looking to God for his divine help. It's only by looking to God and crying to him for his deliverance that we are kept and preserved from eternal damnation. You see, the reason you and I can ever have a hope of being in heaven, it is because we have a helper in heaven. And the helper is God our Father. What has he done to help us? He has given us his word. He has given us scripture, which is sufficient. I understand Bertrand Russell, the, the atheist who said that, you know, if he ever were to die and he ever found himself before God and God asked him, well, why didn't you believe in me? He would say to God, well, you didn't give me enough evidence. But the, God, the word of God is sufficient. God has given us the Old Testament scriptures. He has given us not only the Old Testament scriptures, he has given us the New Testament. It's sufficient. The people of Nineveh, repented over the preaching of Jonah and one greater than Jonah has come who is Christ the Lord if you are to be saved you must not walk around asking God to show you signs don't don't wait for a voice to come to you at night to call you by name don't wait for an angel to appear to you don't wait for something extraordinary to happen to you God has already given you his word and his word tells you to repent. His word tells you to believe in Jesus. The sign that he has given you is Jesus Christ who rose again from the dead. The good news I have for you is this. It is that hell is avoidable and heaven is available. It is available if you will turn to Jesus Christ. If you will believe in him. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sins. 
He paid our debt, and he purchased heaven for us. And all, even on this, the Lord's day, if you are to look to God, your helper, if you are to turn to Jesus Christ, you will be saved. I plead with you. I beg you, if you are still in your sins, to seek Jesus. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. There is a great gulf fixed. May God help you that you will not live your life in fear of hell, but in hope of heaven. If you fear God, you will not have to fear hell. May God help you that you will live loosely to the things of this world, that you'd realize that after this comes eternity, and it is fixed. Repent, turn from your sins, throw yourselves only upon Jesus Christ, the only Savior, and you shall be saved by trusting in Christ in his death and resurrection. You shall be saved for time and for eternity, for Jesus' sake. Amen.